Yo, yo, yo. My guest this week can be found on the ski slopes of Montana and outside of Montana. Duh, he's a North Face athlete. <laughs> His achievements include first adaptive ascents and descents of peaks in the Grand Teton, Beartooth, and Bridger Mountain Ranges, among others. I mentioned the word adaptive because he's a right leg amputee. During our conversation, I asked him how he looks at these routes that had never been done with an adaptive method and how he knew that it was possible for him. Ironically, he told me that growing up with his quote-unquote disability was one of the sources of confidence. He also referenced his background as a mechanical engineer and how it helped him break down problems. Oh, and did I mention that he engineers his own adaptive ski equipment? How cool. When he's not on the slopes, he's an advocate. Whether that's sharing the story of his disability and shattering what we think of as normal on the TED stage, or interviewing various elected officials and athletes on his Instagram at Vasu underscore Sajitra, and with his involvement in various films. You can check out his trailer for Out on a Limb online or hear about the upcoming film here. At one point, I asked Vasu how he helped other disabled folk expand their realms of possibility. And his answer was really inspiring. I personally took a lot of leadership lessons away from it that can be applied outside of the context that we were speaking in. This conversation was overall just a great look into the concept of intersectionality and, of course, the life of a really cool athlete. Without further ado, Vasu Sojitra, welcome to Brown People We Know. In 2018, you, you did something that pretty much all of us aim to do at one point in our lives, which is to give a TED Talk. What was your most memorable experience from that day? And I can't even remember. I kind of phased it out of my life. It was a pretty cool experience to be able to share my narrative on stage. I mean, it was just powerful, and um, I think it was fairly captivating, so that was cool. And uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I, did, I wouldn't have imagined myself to give a TED Talk either, so that was, a, that was definitely a monumental uh, achievement in my eyes. What was the prep like for that? Did you take like a few weeks to write that speech, or uh, was it shorter? Yeah, so it was quite the prep. It was several months and probably like weekly or twice a week. Um, we would try to create a script and then I just had to memorize it. Uh, man, I'm just so bad at memory. So like that took me a while. I would go on runs and hikes and just have myself a pre-recorded part of that speech or that TED talk. And I would just repeat it in my headphones over and over again. So it would just get embedded into my brain, which took forever, but it finally, I was able to finally get it memorized. I still had a few stumbles during the talk, but um, not as much as I thought I was going to. So it was super helpful. Yeah, it came together and it's off the bucket list. Totally. And you had started that talk by talking about moving to India when you were two years old and mentioned that you also moved back to the US before elementary school or at the start of elementary school. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like spending that time in India when you were relatively young had any impact on you that you see today? Oh, 100%. So, yeah, I grew up 
between the age of two and seven in India. And that's pretty powerful in our development as a young kid. So uh, that helped kind of build a uh, sense of, well, one, what poverty actually is and what people have to go through and just seeing different people. I mean, I don't know if you've been to India, but there's just that such a wide spectrum of classism there. So, so it was, uh, it was very interesting to see that and have that be part of my uh, development years, you know, for those five years, um, definitely helped me build some empathy towards folks. Sounds like it fed into some of the advocacy work that you're doing today. I know that you speak Gujarati as well as English. Do you feel like from a cultural retention perspective, you also hold a lot more of your Indian heritage because of your time there? Try to. I'm kind of embedded in both American and Indian culture. When I was younger, I definitely drifted away from Indian culture. Didn't want to like it or be around folks or Gujarati folks or Indian folks or um, uh, didn't want to smell like it. I don't know. My mom's cooking is delicious, but the smell is very strong and powerful and kind of seeps into the clothing. So tried to tried to make sure my clothes didn't smell like it. Definitely had uh, other Indian students that did. And I was like, oh man, I don't want to smell like that. <laughs> so it was a very interesting upbringing, especially given that I was growing up in Connecticut, which is a very white community in Glastonbury. And uh, that definitely impacted my way of understanding people a little bit. I was kind of drifting away from Indian culture a little bit, for sure, when I was growing up there. That's interesting because you now live in Montana, which is probably even more white. It definitely is. But I know the reason that you're living there is most likely skiing, right? So for people that don't know, you had a bacterial infection when you were younger, and, and so your right leg was amputated. But today, you're a North Face athlete with several first ascents and descents under your belt. One of the stories that I've heard you tell is of in 2001, when your brother took you downhill skiing and you saw an older man kind of shredding down the slopes. So can you speak to the significance of that moment? Yeah, when I first went skiing, it was in a small ski hill in Connecticut called Ski Sundown. And I believe I was like 10 years old. We, we were in ski school and the ski school teacher was having difficulty teaching me because he wasn't well versed in adaptive skiing. So it was slightly frustrating to learn and kept falling, of course, and just wasn't really picking it up as fast as I thought I was going to. And then, uh, then me and my brother kind of dipped and went skiing on our own and randomly while I was just like lying in the snow trying to get myself up another person with one leg, older man, uh, skied up to me, just said, like, keep going, and then, like, skied off. And it was kind of this, like, I don't know, serendipitous moment that just, like, kind of changed my perspective a little bit of, like, oh, cool, like, he's doing it. Like, I can totally do this. And then I started looking up online a lot more about adaptive sports and Paralympics and racing and skiing and all these other things that are part of it and kind of just, like, dove headfirst into that ski world, that side of the ski world. That's awesome. When you look at role models today, do you find that your role models tend to be people that reflect you in some way, whether that's being South Asian or having a disability or something like that? Yeah, yeah, they definitely are. Um, and a lot of them are one or the other there, as well as other parts of the identity spectrum, whether that be you know, folks of size, indigenous folks, 
uh, black folks or other activists that are doing a lot of this amazing work, not just athletes. I don't really look up to too many athletes right now, but a lot of them are folks that are very community driven and trying to make their community more ethical and trying to provide resources for folks that might not have that. So those are the folks that I really look up to. Would you say in this moment, your advocacy work might be more front and center to you than your athletic achievements? To a certain extent, yeah. My advocacy work and the work that I do for others is definitely my priority, but I also prioritize my health and well-being and my mental health, which comes from that athletic side. So I find a lot of healing. I utilize that self-care to perpetuate my mission to elevate other people as much as possible. To me, you're a professional once you get that first sponsor, right? So who was your first sponsor? Let's see, well, who was my first sponsor? The first one was definitely, I think, DPS Skis, which I'm still with. So that was cool when they said yes. And most of it was just like free gear, you know? So a lot of the quote unquote pro athletes that would categorize under, you know, having a sponsor primarily just get free gear. But that was kind of the start to this, this side of the career that I've created. Was it like spontaneous or was it something that you had been trying for at the time? Um, no, I, I put myself out there and we were trying to create a film and we did create a film and we were just looking for sponsors. And I reached out to DPS because I had some internal connections through folks on the East Coast up in Vermont and they just connected me and they were DPS was all about sending me some skis. It's fairly, I wouldn't say easy, but it's a lot of ski companies have single skis lying around just because like warranty or something's busted on another pair or something like that. So it wasn't as difficult to get some free product from them at the time. You've gone on to use that free product or maybe some, <laughs> some of your own product to uh, do a lot of first ascents and descents, for example, with the Grand Tetons. And I find that fascinating because there's a process that we all need to go through, right? So I'm a boulderer. And when I step into the climbing gym and I look at a new route, sometimes there's this feeling that my fingers aren't strong enough. And I have to convince myself that it's possible to finish that route before I actually finish that route. So I'm kind of curious with these first ascents and descents, what is your process for that? Do you, how do you go about making yourself believe that it's possible? Yeah, I mean, I... I personally try to connect my mountain life to my day-to-day -day life all the time. And growing up, brown kid, disability, in a very white, non-disabled town, at least in the sense that those weren't the narratives expressed. But um, like I know that I'm able to do hard things. That kind of mentality has always perpetuated me into pushing myself in the mountains as much as possible. And also I have an engineering background and this like problem solving mindset always. I look at a, I guess a mountain or, you know, an objective in the mountains and see what I need to do to be able to accomplish that. And I try to figure out the ways I can get those resources or build my repertoire or my skills based on that. So with the Grand Teton, I knew I was able to do it. Um, I just didn't have the rope skills, so it was nice to have someone that did to help guide me. And yeah, it kind of it kind of just all fell into place. I do tell people that a lot of this stuff is off the couch, but that's not really off the couch. I'm always training and being active and 
making sure that I'm uh, at a pretty steady fitness level. That's helped out a ton when it comes to these many mountain objectives. One of the things that you've done is worked as the adaptive sports director at Eagle Mount. You've kind of described the process of making yourself believe that it's possible, right? But how do you go about helping some of those folk that you're working with there know that they can go beyond their current limits? So yeah, I don't work there anymore. I Because of COVID, there was a, a few folks that were unfortunately let go, but when it comes to uh, setting goals and accomplishing goals and uh, being able to feel like feel freedom and be able to connect in the ski in the ski world the way that we were able to do it and i was able to do it is just having conversations listening having like being patient reaching out to resources whether it be their parents or their caregivers or their teachers uh, just to understand where the student might be at in their life and what their skill levels are at we really focus on that ability as much as possible um, within the disability world, that's kind of our go-to is just understanding what our abilities are at and just pushing it a little bit more one notch at a time. And, you know, just taking our time. Patience is like one of the biggest things that I've learned while being in the disabled community is just like, we all need our own space and time and we all have our own needs and it's just going to take a bit of time for others to understand that. And that was, that was the biggest thing is just taking that into account when it comes to something as you know minor as developing a ski lesson and do you feel like it's often more challenging for people within that community or do you feel like a lot of the maybe pressure or disbelief comes from outside i always say that you know disability is part of human diversity we're all part of a spectrum of ability and a lot of it, a lot of the barriers are put on to us from outside sources. So whether that be, you know, something as obvious as a staircase or a door or different types of communication styles, whether it be for, you know, the deaf community or the blind community. So those are, those are kind of things that we have no control over other than being vocal about what, in, what our needs are in providing that communication style or need. So yeah, that's kind of how I put it is like, you know, we as disabled folks are able to whatever we have the ability to do as long as resources are available. And that's the biggest thing that Eagle Mount was able to do is just provide those resources in a way that is consensual. And the hardest thing for a lot of folks to understand is um, a lot, most folks without disabilities always, not always, but for the most part, pity or want to help folks with disabilities because they look like that they're suffering or, you know, broken or whatever these, you know, stigmas are with disability. And that's just not the case. You know, we're our own people. We're an incredibly resilient community. People have tried to kill us through eugenics, through institutions, through all these other forms throughout the past thousands of years to try to get rid of disabled folks. And that's just not the case. On this show, we've talked about the positives and negatives of Indian culture and community, right? And one of the things that comes up is that communal mindset as a positive. A negative that sometimes comes up is that Indian culture can be a little bit old-fashioned, for example, through ideas around patriarchy. Do you find that with Indian or South Asian culture, there's been more or less progress on ableism and attitudes towards disability? 
That's a great question. I don't know. I'm not really embedded too much into it, but I know that Indian culture is fairly binaric in the sense that, you know, a man does this, a woman does this, a non-disabled person does this, a disabled person does this, or how we treat those certain populations. So that's the hard stigma to break down as well. And that, that we see in the U.S. as well a lot too, but we're all, again, our own people and uh, we're our own humans and we have our own needs and our own abilities. And once we start understanding that as Indians, we're just going to, we're going to try to break down those stereotypes that come with it. Another thing that you had mentioned was enabling yourself, right? Or, or getting over the, the barriers. Aside from the time you've actually spent skiing on the slopes, you've also designed some of your own equipment. For example, adapting your ski crutches to make backcountry skiing possible. Did that at all influence your decision to go into mechanical engineering at the University of Vermont? It was actually the other way around. So I went into engineering first and then developed the backcountry ski attachment for my ski outriggers. And yeah, I mean, it's constantly been influential in the stuff that I'm constantly creating for myself when it comes to these activities. So the next thing I created was a an ice axe attachment for my outrigger so I could stop myself if I, or self-arrest if I were to fall down a steep snowy or icy slope. So that was that was the next thing I made. And then, you know, all these little things, I look at, this is a problem and what's the solution? So just like working backwards to figure out like how to, how to develop something that'll work for me. It takes a little bit of time and you know, again, those resources, I have friends who are designers and welders and work with metal and all these fabricators. So it's really nice to have that, have that resource available in developing a lot of this stuff, this stuff for me. It's just very unique and niche. <laughs> so has your focus been mostly on adaptive equipment? There may be a mundane reason for this, but I'm also curious why you choose to ski without a prosthetic. Focus has been primarily on my own adaptive equipment. And then people have reached out to me to ask me how to make some of this stuff. And I've offered where to find it, how to buy it, what to like, how to make it. A lot of the other stuff, I'm, I don't know if anyone was able to, I mean, I would love other folks with crutches and outriggers and ninja sticks to be able to get out there. Um, but I just haven't seen anyone. I'm like, I don't be the only one. This is kind of a bummer. Maybe in due time. I'm always hoping that there's like a, you know, young teenager that's going to crush it in the mountains and just like beat me in everything, put the fastest times on anything and like put down first descents on everything that I've done or more so. So um, that's kind of the, the idea there. And then uh, as for the prosthetic, I stopped wearing one when I was 10 years old when I started skiing. And that was through a traumatic experience that I had in a classroom. And I was just like, no, I'm not wearing it anymore. It's kind of a burden. I was always using crutches. Uh, when I got home, I would instantly take it off. It was literally a pain in my ass. My amputation is super high. And I would, I'm literally sitting on the socket. Going back to mechanical engineering then, what, you mentioned that it was the other way around, right? You went into mechanical engineering, then you started applying it to your skiing. What was your initial motivation for mechanical engineering? Because I was good at it. <laughs> I was good at math and tinkering. And I always played with Legos when I was younger and just always problem solving. 
again, like having a disability in a very fairly ableist world, I'm always constantly problem solving on how to do things for the most part independently. Like we, you know, within the disability community want to be as independent as possible. And that was kind of my goal. And my brother was very much adamant about pushing me to be independent, which is great. And it's definitely helped me find that sense of freedom in that, uh, in my own day-to-day life. So that's, that's been awesome. But yeah, that independence was helpful in like developing different strategies and methods of problem solving. Um, and that kind of influenced my choice to go into engineering. So then you went on to work at Eagle Mount and you started Earth Tones. Your career itself has been very skiing focused. I have no concept of what a typical day might look like for someone like that. So I'm, yeah. I'm kind of curious <laughs> if you could walk me through one. <laughs> there is, I don't really have a typical day this entire week. I'm just, it's like different campaigns, initiatives, conversations, podcasts, um, Zoom calls, um, go like working out for an hour, going for a run, going for a bike ride, like all just intertwined into a week. So it's kind of like all over the place. I don't, yeah, I don't really have a, a routine, which is kind of fun and also just like all over the place. And how do you bounce in major projects with work? I'm assuming that when you went to do the Grand Tetons or some of your other projects, you had to spend some time actually away training on those routes. No, I didn't actually train that much. <laughs> so that the Grand Teton was kind of just like an impromptu. Someone invited me like, I think a week before the trip even went out, which was very, very um, impulsive. And I was like, sure, I'll come. Sounds fun. And uh, it was a weekend trip, so it worked out really well. I was working, I don't know, it was a, in the summers, it was a four day a week summer camp program. And they were all like 10 to 12 hour days. So primarily like 40 hours a week there, but I had a three day weekend usually. So that helped out in creating some week weekend trips. And that was Grand Teton one was definitely a, a three, three, four day trip. So that worked out pretty well. And then a lot of the other things I just kind of work around. I schedule it months in advance or a few weeks in advance and just make sure my work is kind of working around that stuff and the meetings I have and schedule also work around a lot of that. So it's kind of a weird balance of prioritizing what, what do I want to prioritize first? And I know you've been doing some running lately. Are there any other big projects that you're currently working on or or hope to work on in the near future? Yeah, so I'm trying to ski the Grand Teton. Hopefully this winter is supposed to happen this past spring, but of course COVID happened and it kind of put a damper in a lot of people's work. Plan is to ski the Grand Teton and that'll be, uh, the idea is to have a sponsored film for that as well. Given that my title sponsor is North Face, that's the, that's the plan there is to get North Face on board. And then just a few little video projects either with REI or my other sponsors, Darn Tough or BioLite or anything like that, just to promote uh, that inclusive aspect of equal representation in a lot of this outdoor industry media, uh, which has been so, so far behind uh, when it comes to um, elevating people of color, people with disabilities, indigenous folks, black folks, super far behind. It's a very 
heteronormative culture and it's just not that's just not okay you know that's just not the narrative of the u.s there's brown folks everywhere there's disabled folks everywhere you know the u.s is i call it more of a stone soup instead of a melting pot but yeah so it's just trying to make sure that our cultures are being elevated and celebrated so that's that's the idea and making these films as well it seems like community and empowering and growing the community is really important to you right i know for me climbing gives me a lot of physical and mental benefits and you've spoken about those for skiing but you've also mentioned the community benefits is that something that you expected to find when you first started skiing and do you think you would have kept skiing without it without finding a community within skiing I wasn't expecting to find it. I mean, I was a kid and I just wanted to have fun with my friends and my brother. So that in itself was a, you know, a small little pod community. But now in hindsight, I look back at it and realize like, I don't think I would be where I'm at without the, the people that I was skiing with and the influences that I had from them. And like being able to go skiing up to Vermont from Connecticut on a weekly basis or, you know, go ski midweek with our ski team in high school like twice a week so it was just like you know trying to create these opportunities and building community with a lot of the ski culture as well it's been great having you on thanks for joining me yeah definitely appreciate it